Hi everyone and welcome to the Silvati's podcast. I'm really excited this week because I've got Lazarus Nono joining me. Now, Lazarus is one of those people who've been in practice since 1997. He graduated from the British School of Osteopathy, which now is known as the University College of Osteopathy, back in 1997, and has been a tutor at the British College of Osteopathic Medicine since 2002. So he's going to bring a wealth of knowledge to the podcast today. I'm really excited to learn more about his dance background and where he thinks the profession is going to be going, hopefully very soon. So thank you so much for joining me today, Lazarus. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. That's really kind of you. I have such complimentary statements. Maybe I deserve them, maybe not. Who knows? We will see as this interview goes along. I should write your bio for your website or something. <laughs> well, I will keep you to that. So there we are. You've just created the job now for yourself. Fantastic. And it's it's very true. You know, you've been in practice for such a long period of time. And to me, that just speaks volumes about, you know, the breadth of and the, the depth of the knowledge you've acquired and, and how much of that you passed down as a tutor um, when I was a student. I wonder if you can tell me a bit more about your background. So I um, went to classical ballet school and I was sort of going down the um, sort of road where I was going to become a dancer. And I was very passionate about becoming a dancer. I loved it. But sadly, I injured both my knees. So I damaged the um, meniscus in both of the knees. And that sort of prevented me from dancing. And I saw lots of different medical people who kept saying to me, take it easy. Now, as a dancer, what does that mean, take it easy? I don't know. So I kept sort of modifying my class but it just got worse. And after each class, my knees would be really sore, but I tolerated it and I kept dancing, but it got worse. So finally I went to the um, dance center on Harley Street and um, the um, physiotherapist was about to give me stretching exercises for the posterior leg musculature. And I remember I said to her, um, should I be doing this? What's your opinion? And she said to me, well, if you really want my opinion, I think she may have been feeling quite brave on that day, you should give up. And I said, okay, you know, that's how much pain I was in. And I walked out of the um, dance as a clinic and thought, wow, what am I going to do now? You know, that sudden realization that you're not a dancer um, anymore. So this identification of who you are as a person, is it your job or... Are you more than your job? But at that time, I was definitely my job. So that's how I decided perhaps what I would do is train either to become a physiotherapist or a osteopath to treat dancers and get a better understanding. That's what I thought. So therefore I applied for physiotherapy. I applied for osteopathy. I got a place at the British College of Osteopathy, um, or, sorry, the British College of Osteopathy and that's where my journey started. And I imagine, and you talked about the identification, I think that's so important because I think that's how a lot of people 
not just even dancers, but a lot of people identify with their profession mm -hmm. rather than identify with them as a person. Mm -hmm. I suppose this is, I suppose my question is, how often do you think that happens in the professional dance world where, you know, you, you have an injury or you're not able to dance for whatever reason and your entire world just changes? Um, from my humble opinion, I think quite often because one usually starts very young and it's something that you do a lot of, and especially with musicians. They really do identify being a musician. You know, they have this, well, they have different voices. They have their own voice. They have their musical voice. And then they have that tactile impact with the instrument every single day. So every single day, you are touching this wooden instrument, brass instrument, or using your voice. And then if you can't do that, then you've lost a part of yourself. You've lost two parts of yourself. You've lost that intimate relationship with your instrument. And you've also lost that um, vocabulary that you use all the time. So let's say that you um, play string instrument and every day you pick up your string to an instrument and you work at creating a sound, a voice, communication with the audience. And then you have a terrible hand injury that prevents you from playing. Then suddenly you've lost that voice. And I think that's quite detrimental for that individual because then who are they? Because they spent so many hours being a part of that instrument and the instrument being a part of them which now they can't express um, um, anymore. Absolutely, and that's something that I can definitely relate to because prior to training as an osteopath, I spent my entire sort of almost career trying to be a psychologist and mm -hmm. that changed for me. And then coming into osteopathy, it was that, you know, you, you talk about the instrument and being one with that and, for me, there was no instrument per se, but it was this identification of what I was going to be and how quickly that changes. And in that shift from the psychology to the osteopathy, I really recognized the, the link between the two. And it was only until I started really um, studying at the British College of Osteopathic Medicine and I realized there was this whole, those two years worth of psychology, which fortunately now I teach, that I really appreciated that link between the two. So in practice, how much of that is at the forefront of when you're treating or interacting with patients? I think that's a good point. Each osteopath brings some history. So if you've come directly from school, then you won't have that history to bring to it. So I think I'm quite a dynamic osteopath because of my dance. I'm very hands-on base. And what I do is very dynamic because in a way, it's almost like an osteopathic dance. My dance is so ingrained in me that it comes out in everything that I do. And so therefore it's a very important part of me. But similar to you, your psychological training will always be a part of your osteopathy because you can't divorce yourself from that. So when you see a patient, you're naturally thinking about what psychological impact is in the background. So this patient has um, chronic lower back pain. You're not just thinking to yourself, and please do correct me, 
this patient just has chronic lower back pain. You're thinking to yourself, this patient has chronic lower back pain. Therefore, psychologically, what impact has this had on this patient? And what is it doing now? What's preventing their skeletal system from getting better from a psychological point of view? How many barriers are there in the background now that I need to try to also shift to get them back to normal? It's not just about doing a number of techniques on that patient. It's about investigating their psychological health that may be now preventing them from getting better. How do you feel about that statement? I mean, I think you should write my bio for my website. Okay, maybe <laughs> I will. <laughs> we'll, we'll do an exchange here because I was exactly. so eloquently put. And I wonder how easy it is as an osteopath, for example, for you, who, I mean, I've just recently graduated, but you have a lot more years behind you to be able to do that. Because I definitely struggle, um, especially with the time constraints in which the organization I work in, um, you know, to be able to balance the, the treatment, the psychology, just being able to handle the patient as well. So how easy is it for you to be able to incorporate all these things into a treatment or a treatment plan? It's not easy at all. And in fact, it doesn't matter how long you've been in this business. It's just hard work. I'm a very average osteopath. And when I say to my students, I'm very average, they say to me, come on, Mr. Nirmir. But I am, because every time I pass the library, I'm aware of the knowledge that I don't know. And the difference between both of us is the escalator of knowledge. So I may be higher up on the escalator, but the escalator is constantly going down. So we are both constantly walking up this escalator, trying to improve our osteopathic skills, our knowledge, our understanding. So it's never easy. And I've always frowned when I've heard osteopaths say that I'm really good, I'm brilliant, and you know, I know what I'm doing because I've always been struggling to understand the complexity of that individual. And coming back to that psychology, you know, there are so many things as you're aware of, there are so many things in the background that we don't get to touch on, which have a massive impact on the patient's healing. So if you think that one or two techniques is going to remedy that problem, I feel myself that you may be being slightly naive because the picture is very complicated. And sometimes I think it's about time. It has nothing to do with what we've done. As Andy Mansfield was saying, it's the different rhythms in palpation. And it may not be the different rhythms that's actually doing the healing, but what it may be is that time we're giving the patient, the communication, the listening, the space, that window for the patient to relax, to think, to feel somebody cares about them and not somebody who's pushing them out on that conveyor belt. Next, next, but somebody who's saying, this is your time. Tell me what your problems are. Tell me what's happened to you. Tell me why you're in this place. How can I help you? And not, you know, it's one more in, out, in, out. How much money can I get from you? No, it's about us communicating. So I think that's the key. And that is something that I think you just carry on doing 
until you retire. But you're never going to get there. That's how I see it. And I think it's really interesting that you describe yourself as an average osteopath, because especially after graduating, it feels like you're in this race to be better, to do better, to acquire more knowledge, to do all these CPD courses. And it's, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Monica Blackburn, actually, um, on the podcast, and who is a, a, um, a former student of yours as well, the imposter syndrome that we sometimes feel. Do you ever experience that still? All the time. All the time. You always go to yourself, am I doing the right thing? Um, so can I justify what I'm doing? And I mean, I always write my aim. What is it I'm trying to achieve? Just to keep me on the straight and narrow. I think when you graduate, you are under the impression that you need to go out there and learn different skills. But osteopathy isn't about adding things to it. Andrew Taylor still said that the more you add to osteopathy, the more you lose of osteopathy. And I think that perhaps it's my dance background. As a dancer, you come back to your foundation constantly. You constantly come back and look at your foundation, improve your techniques, polish them, polish them, polish them. Because what you're really looking for is communication. And you can't communicate if your foundation's weak. So if you're not spending time reading um, osteopathy, the um, philosophical background of osteopathy, then are you practicing as an osteopath? That's your question. I mean, I spent all my time since I've graduated constantly coming back to osteopathy, constantly asking myself about osteopathy. When I did my master's in performing arts medicine at UCL, University College of London, I didn't do the course thinking I'm going to become something else. I did the course because I wanted to understand the performing artist from an osteopathic point of view. So I always had in the background my osteopathic foundation. So when I treat a performing artist, I'm treating them from an osteopathic point of view and not as a performing artist medicine base. That's my title, that I'm still an osteopath. So I'm always constantly trying to improve my osteopathic platform, my foundation. And that just means coming back to it all the time, coming back, rereading. And what's amazing is rereading your basic stuff makes things click. You suddenly think, oh, right. So therefore, so for example, if you're thinking about the upper thoracic spine and you're reading the anatomy and you're thinking about the pathology in that area and then you're starting to think so osteopathically what am I trying to have an impact on that's because you've come back to your foundation now if you're just thinking about maybe I should do a taping course maybe I should do some dry needling maybe I should do some rehab you're just adding stuff but in a way are you doing justice to the things that you've added you know, so when you're doing dry needling, do you understand dry needling or are you just placing these needles and sort of convincing yourself that this is the right thing? It may be helpful, it's a tool, but could you do something else that uses your osteopathic tools instead? That would be my question. And I'm not condemning anybody, so I'm not saying that you should do it. All I'm saying is, in my opinion, before you uh, reach for another tool, 
maybe you need to look at your osteopathic tools and the principles and think, what is it about these tools that I don't feel I can use? Maybe that's the question as a one should ask. And that brings me back to something you said earlier about what is your aim of treatment? And mm. as a student, you, you would say continuously. And as, as a student receiving it, I was completely perplexed. And I was, so there were times where I was like, I, I don't know. But now treating and practicing, your voice is in my head, Lazarus. Every time I'm stuck, I'm like, well, what is my aim? And then I always go back to that foundation. I always go back to the core principle of what am I trying to achieve? Um, so know that you're in my head constantly now. Thank you. And as you were saying, so for example, when you're dealing with a senior patient, you're looking at multiple joints that have structural change. Now, if you haven't acknowledged that, you can't change that structure. You have osteophysic formation. So if you spend your time just mobilizing an arthritic knee, you will create more chaos because it's bone on bone. But the moment you start to think about that person, let's call this person Mrs. Smith. What do I need Mrs. Smith to be able to do? And the answer is very simple. Live her life and function as much as she can do. So I need to lean in that direction. And anything that I can do, do as an osteopath to help her day, I'm winning. So it's no good just looking at this arthritic knees. It's looking at her. If the hands look problematic, then I think if I could do some work on the hands, will that help her to express herself as in picking up things, cooking, reading, dressing? If there's a limp and it's bony change, how can I help the body to adjust around that bony change and not just treat the knee? That's not what we do as osteopaths. What I feel we do as osteopaths is we treat the person. And it's very easy to say that, especially now. I meet lots of osteopaths who talk about treating the person, that when you watch them, they're just treating the pain instead of asking themselves the simple questions. How can I help this individual to function on a day-to-day -day basis? And that's not saying to yourself, I need to heal this person. That's just accepting the things you cannot change and working with the things that you can change. As Andrew Taylor still said, anybody can find disease. Our job as an osteopath is to find health, health within that tissue. So if I have an arthritic elbow that only moves 10%, can I find health in the rest of the body? And if so, then that's what I feel I need to work on and not spend my time trying to work on something that has lost most of its movement. Yeah, and I think that's such a salient point that sometimes I forget. And if I forget, I'm sure other people mm. forget it too, is not being too focused on one thing mm. and just broaden your viewpoint a little bit more. And especially when you go into private practice and you're working as a sole practitioner, I think it's it's the interaction we get from from other osteopaths is something that I uh, miss a lot. And that's such a salient point because sometimes we can get too narrow and too focused on one area and we forget the bigger perspective, the big picture. Um, speaking of that then, coming back 
to you mentioned you you know you did this qualification in um in performing arts medicine mm. is your approach any different when you treat dancers than you would a lay person for example no because all i'm doing there is um, seeking to allow them to express their art and so i'm still looking at the whole body so I meet um, osteopaths who say that they don't need to look at the whole body. Well, maybe there's a good possibility and I will accept it. Maybe I'm still very naive. Maybe I'm you know, not very good at my job, but I am still doing the basics. I still do a standing examination. I look at the patient. I say to the body, I ask the patient to undress down to their underwear because that's important. You know, One's constantly seeing now in the profession this thing about or you shouldn't ask the patient to undress. You should be Superman, look through their clothes, which is a complete nonsense. And I constantly look at the body and I say to the body, tell me something. What's wrong with you? What's not working? How can I help you? And then I say to the body, show me. And I ask them to move. Simple principles. And based on what I see and how they move, tells me what I should look at next. And then when I look at that area, I'm listening to the body. And if the body says to me, yes, but this is not the area you need to look at, you need to look somewhere else, then I will look somewhere else and not get fixated on the pain. The pain is there for a reason. Coming back to psychology, as you would say, if I meet an angry person down the road, it's easy to see the expression, this person's angry. But the question is, the difficult question is, why are they angry? And that may be so complicated, but unless you address that why, then they're always going to be angry. It's the same thing there. If the tissue is very angry, rubbing the tissue may not be the right thing. Maybe you need to understand why that tissue is so irritated. So from a dancer's point of view, I'm always still doing the same thing. I'm looking at the body from obviously a dance point of view. So I get them to show me how they dance, what they do with their body. If I see a musician, I'll get them to play for me so I can see what they do with their body. And then I will try to make some sensible adjustments and see if that will help them. But to me, it's always back to that principle. Look at the patient, see what the patient's able to do and then respond. But as Andrew said, this constant communication, this constant hand to body, and not being shy. We're getting a little bit shy, you know, trying to do whatever we do very quickly, in and out. No, we need to create that time to think and giving the patient time. I think coming back again, we're talking about psychology, giving the patient time as a part of the healing process, giving them a space to think. We are only communicating most of the healing is done by the patient. I mean, I don't have any healing skills. If I had healing skills, I'd be stinking rich because people would come to me and I would heal them and that would be it. And the word would get out and I'd have so many people who needed to be healed and I would do it, but I don't. All I can do is communicate with the patient. I can have a dialogue, this non-verbal communication with the patient. And in a way, we got a little bit too drawn into the verbal side. I keep saying to my students, they've got excellent verbal communications and they demonstrate it and I'm proud of them. 
But I have to say to them, stop talking sometimes. Listen with your hands. Listen to the body. Yes, communicate with the patient. Yes, find out their needs. But then you have to get to a point where you stop talking and you need to listen. Listen to the tissue. Hear what the body tells you and not impose yourself on that body. And I think that's the big challenge and that will take forever. You know, all you do with that skill is as you develop, you just develop different ideas. You become more aware of how rushed you are and how you are imposing yourself on the patient. I think that's what time gives you. And teaching has helped me a lot because teaching shows me even more how osteopaths can impose their thoughts on the patient. And do you think it's just time that's sort of shifted us away from things like getting the patient to undress or spending more time palpating the tissue um, rather than just prescribing exercises sooner? I mean, do you think there are other factors of why that shift has happened or what's created that shift? I think it's the um, politics of the business. You know, so there's lots of people in the background who are bureaucrats who are pushing their ideas forward. And they have no idea about osteopathy. They just want this sort of um, medicalized osteopathy. And if we go down that road, which sadly I, I feel we are going down that road, we will lose osteopathy. And osteopathy is a small business. It has great potential, but it won't survive if we produce people who don't want to be osteopaths, who are not passionate about improving their osteopathic platform. You know, and the more graduates we create, we go out there and search for add-ons. All we're doing is weakening our foundation. And eventually when the old dinosaurs like me pass away, then the new as a generation won't be like me. They won't be pushing osteopathy. They'll be pushing some minor you know physiotherapy or whatever but i mean maybe i'm being too harsh maybe i'm you know sort of naive and i don't mind you know that idea i mean there's a good possibility that i'm very naive when it comes to this idea but i can i think i've been speculating that what's going to happen is we are going to become manual medicine and well, I mean, this is my theory, and I hope my theory is incorrect. I really do. But I feel what the, um, what's going to happen is the General Osteopathic Council will no more exist. And the good question there will be, if the General Osteopathic Council doesn't exist, then what's going to happen to its assets? Will they come back to the osteopathic profession? Will that financial surplus be given back to osteopaths, or will it be given to the bureaucrats who run the General Osteopathic Council. So we'll get rid of all of those bodies and then we'll be under one umbrella, which will be a good thing. But then what will happen is the um, manual medicine will be waived at us. Most probably waived in a way that's saying you can still be an osteopath, but you'll be manual medicine, an osteopath, manual medicine. Then once we're under this umbrella, we'll have chiropractors, physiotherapists, all under this umbrella of manual medicine. And once we're snugly under there, then the powers to be will say, well, you know, do we need all these names? They confuse the general public. Let's just stick to the manual medicine. And then once we're under manual medicine, then 
the big research machine will start saying, well, what's working, what's not working? And then we'll start cutting things down until maybe 10, 20 years time. When you look at osteopathy, what it will be is manual medicine and not osteopathy, not chiropractor, not physiotherapy. It will be manual medicine. Now for the physiotherapist, they may feel that's great. They've got nothing to lose. You know, in fact, for them, that's a bonus. For chiropractors and osteopaths, that will be the end of our profession. And sadly, I think that's most probably where we're going. I mean, I, I do hope sincerely, hand on heart, that, I, that I'm wrong, that I feel that, you know, as I've watched things over the last 20 years at the British College of Osteopathic Medicine changing, evolving, I see, you know, that whisper of manual medicine even greater. And don't get me wrong about research because I wear three hats always in practice. I have my foundation, which is, which is my osteopathic hat, and it stays on my head all the time. And then on top of that, I wear my medical hat. That means I need to understand my medicine. I need to understand where to refer a patient when it's outside my remit. And I wear my research hat. I'm always asking myself about the validity of what I do and what's the research saying. And so I've got nothing against research. I think it's very important, but I think we need to do research that's gonna help osteopathy, not research that's gonna kill osteopathy. So it needs more osteopaths looking at the things we do as osteopaths and trying to see whether there's any validity in that than doing research that talks about whether a white coat or a non-white coat is important in clinic. I don't know. And you make a couple of really interesting points there that I picked up on was one, the research, but two, also the name itself. So coming back to the research then, why do you think there aren't more osteopaths conducting research? Um, finance, I think definitely. And I don't think the profession pushes it. So when you look at the, um, the um, Institute of Osteopathy, when you look at their magazine, do you see literature that's talking about osteopathy? Do you see literature that's talking about the techniques that we use? Do you see um, articles that are talking about the philosophical idea of osteopathy? No, you don't. The last um, issue that I read was talking about rehab and exercise. Rehab and exercise is really important, but is that osteopathy? Is that promoting osteopathy or is that promoting rehab, yoga, exercise? Does it say to the next generation, this is osteopathy or does it say to the next generation, you need to go out there and learn how to do rehab? I would disagree because we already have rehab skills because we understand the body. And if you understand how the body works, then you can work out what you need to do. And if it's outside your remit, then you should go and talk to somebody who does serious rehab. So if I had a patient who had serious knee trauma, who needed rehab, I would send them for rehab. I wouldn't do it. I don't need to do it. My job is the osteopathic job. And if anything comes my way that is not for me, I would refer them. And that's no different to if a patient comes, let's say that a female patient comes to me, she has lower back pain, and I ask the history of fibroids or cysts, 
and she has a very strong history of uterine fibroids. I would send her for investigations just to make sure that her lower back pain isn't due to fibroids. If somebody comes to me and they've torn their anterior cruciate ligament, I'm going to send them for rehab. When they come back, then I'm going to start using my osteopathic skills. I don't need to learn how to do intricate rehab. That's not my domain. You see, as an osteopath, we need to understand our domain. And my domain, my passionate domain is osteopathy. And I fully embrace everybody else's domain. I have no problem with any other discipline. I am going to always refer. If a patient needs massage, I'm not doing it. I will send them to see a massage therapist. If I feel the pain will be managed by acupuncture, I would send them to see a professional acupuncturist. I'm not going to do that. I don't expect people to dabble in osteopathy. That's not their domain. My domain is osteopathy, and I respect everybody else's domain. This is the problem. So the Institute of Osteopathy publishing all of this idea about rehab, telling osteopaths that we need to you know, learn rehab. No, we don't. We need to stick to our domain, becoming strong osteopaths and understanding what we need to refer. That's my thoughts on it. Again, I will always say, maybe it's just a very naive opinion. Who knows? It's interesting though, because as a new graduate, I suddenly mm. felt that pressure to prescribe exercises to, um, yes, we always know the remit of what we can treat and how much we can treat. And we understand that we can refer, but this pressure to be able to encapsulate everything under one hat is something that I definitely felt a lot of pressure about. And so it's interesting because you talk about the almost this dilution of, of the term osteopath and mm. what that encapsulates. And certainly I remember in one of the jobs that I had, and not my current one, so please don't fire me. Um, when I started, they said, you know, we're going to call you an MSK therapist. <laughs> and this was my first day. And I just thought, I don't know how I feel about this. I knew I felt uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable because I thought, well, I am an osteopath. I've trained as an osteopath. And I applied as an osteopath. And so it, it just, it, it, and it just reminds me when you're talking about that, it just, that, that, that gut sort of feeling of uncomfortableness just hit me again, where I was like, they were trying to almost change what I, not change what I did, because what we do is, is unique to us, mm. but change the public's perception of what we mm. do to the point where I even had to ask them, I'm like, I don't know what an MSK therapist is. I don't know mm. if I saw an MSK therapist, I don't know what I would know what to expect. And so I just kept calling myself an osteopath. Well, two points you mentioned there, I think is really important. First thing is as an osteopath, the reason why we are osteopaths, it's our training, it's that indoctrination of being immersed in osteopathy from day one right from the beginning being asked to think about the body and so you can't go and do a weekend course and become an osteopath because it's the journey it's that long period of thinking studying working with other osteopaths and exchanging ideas and then this thing about being proud to be an osteopath i mean it's an audacity 
for somebody to say, we will call you a musculoskeletal herpes. Because that's saying that being an osteopath doesn't mean anything. And I think what we need to be as a profession is we need to get rid of this embarrassment. And I don't see it in the older generations. The older generation are proud to be osteopaths. But in the younger generation, sadly, they're quite happy to be called anything. You know, they don't stand up and say, excuse me, I'm an osteopath. Now, if you say, well, it's just a name, then that's not true. Because if somebody wants to abbreviate my name, I say, excuse me, my name is Lazarus. I like that name. It tells me who I am. This is who I am. So don't abbreviate it. My name is Lazarus. And when somebody says to me, what you do and for a living, I don't take on a flex posture. I don't change my tone. I don't lower my tone and apologize. I say, I'm an osteopath. And if they say to me, oh, what's that? I'm happy to tell them. You know, this question people like to ask us. And, you know, you don't go to a doctor and say to a doctor, oh, excuse me, doctor, um, I'd like you to tell me the difference between an orthopedic consultant, a neurologist, and a gynecologist. Because the doctor would say to you, um, can we just continue with the treatment, please, and move on. But people love saying to us, what is the difference between a physiotherapist an osteopath and a chiropractor. And then you get, as you say, naivety. When you graduate, you're naive and you feel the urge that you've got to justify, which in fact is really disrespectful to physiotherapists and chiropractors. Because first of all, you're not trained to be a chiropractor or a physiotherapist. So you have no idea, really. You either have a prejudice or you have this naive idea of what physiotherapists do or what chiropractors do. And it's wrong. I mean, I say to patients, look, I'm not trained as a chiropractor. I'm not trained as a physiotherapist. I can't comment. I have no idea what they do, really. I have as much of an understanding of what they do as you do. But I'm really happy, more than happy, to bore you with what osteopathy are, if you like. And then patients usually say to me, no, thank you. But I can talk about osteopathy until you're blue in the face. But I'm not going to start talking about chiropractor or physiotherapy because I'm not that's not my discipline it's rude of me to even think about it so I think what we need to do is stand up and be proud and push the profession forward in an osteopathic diagnosis uh, sorry push the profession forward in an osteopathic direction and just be proud and do you think that's rooted in our knowledge of the philosophy itself because and this is no sort of you know criticism of of my education but when I was a student that wasn't something that was pushed heavily and so I felt like I learned more from people like you from Andy Mansfield for example when we had them in and when we had you in in clinic and just you know talking about the philosophy and and the engagement and the excitement of that is something that rubbed off for me that made me then go and read up a little more, which is not a whole lot, if I'm quite honest. Mm. But it's, it's I, I wonder if it's rooted in understanding the history and the philosophy of the profession, which then gives you a greater appreciation. And then this, this being able to 
understand where we come from to then know where we're going in a way. Mm, yes, yes. And I like the as a quote from Bob Marley, if you know your history, then you'll know where you're coming from, which is which is so true, which is, you know, um, osteopathy is a philosophy. It's it's how we approach our patients. It's not technique, it's not about, you know, apply this technique, that technique. It's the understanding. It's the appreciation of the complexity of the body. But also the um, human body is exciting. So rushing and not spending time investigating, all you're doing is shortchanging yourself because it's exciting to look at the human body and the complexity and just have that window. When somebody comes in to see you and they say to you, you know, you can interact with my body. It's like dancing tango. You know, when you dance tango, there's this physicality between both of you. You're chest to chest, leaning into each other, and you find that central communication. And when the man moves and the female feels that pressure and she responds and vice versa, and there's that constant communication. Well, osteopathy is like that especially from a palpation point of view. You place your hands on the patient and you rest them and you listen to what the tissue is telling you. There's the excitement, that feedback. It's not prod, 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 push, 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 crack, 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 pull, 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 off you go. No, next one. You need to give yourself time. I say to the students, give yourself time to think. Give yourself time to listen to the body. Because if you're gonna find some balance, it's going to be because you're listening. So the more you listen, the story becomes a little bit clearer. Let me repeat that. The story becomes only a little bit clearer. It doesn't become clearer. It's just a little bit. But that's all we have. We just have a little bit of the picture and we respond to that small picture. So every time when you see the patient, you are responding to their body. You're picking up more information. So the idea that you did a standing examination last week and you know the patient, so I don't need to do it again. I assessed the patient last week, so I don't need to do it again because I know the patient. How egotistic is that? You know the patient. It's ridiculous. You know, how much of my patient do I know? Tiny. I say to my patients, your body is too complicated for me to understand. All I can do is communicate with you, is to try to understand what your body's telling me. And that's all I can ever do. And each time I see you, I try to understand a bit more. So it's almost like we take that very large jigsaw puzzle and we scatter it on the floor. That's the patient. And every time they give us, and remember, they give us the opportunity, they come back and they invest time and money with us. And when they do that, they say to us, you can put a few more pieces of the puzzle together. But when you say to yourself that you've already put all the pieces together and you know that patient, I'd say maybe you're just being a little bit naive. And that reminds me of when, when I was a student and you used to 
you know, there are these little nuggets that used to deliver to us, which I have in a book somewhere. Wow. I wrote down everything that everyone said to me in clinic. Okay, that's good. Um, I shouldn't say it's a little book, it's a bigger book now, but um, you know, one thing you always said was you always treat the person anew every time you see them. Mm, that's right. See the patient for the first time every time. And, let's, and the reason why that's so important, because you miss things all the time. Anybody who tells you they don't miss things, then obviously they are asleep. We miss things. I miss things every single day. And every time you stand back and you look at the patient for the first time, every time you think, oh my God, how did I miss that? Why did I not understand that? Why is that shoulder in that place? Did I not see that at consult? Did I fall asleep? But you know, so, so that's the reason why it's so important. And let's say there is pathology that should have been referred. I feel that you're most probably more likely to spot it because you're always standing back, looking and thinking. Um, Audrey Smith, who was the vice principal at the um, British College of Osteopathy, used to say that when you've reached your diagnosis, then you stop thinking. And if you can hold back as long as possible, then it makes you constantly question. And that's what we should be doing. If you're seeing a patient for 10 treatments and they're not I'm sorry, and they're not getting better, then you should be thinking to yourself, what have I missed? What am I overlooking? And this other idea of blaming the patient, the patient not getting better because they are lazy, because they don't do the exercise they are not doing, 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 whatever. So when we come back to psychology, we know that we need to address psychologically, why is the patient not taking on the information that I'm giving them? And then what is it that I am not doing that's helping the patient to get better? And then thirdly, as one of my tutors said, Andy Cotton, he said to me, sometimes, things take a long time to get better and you just have to accept that there's a journey it's a bit like putting on weight you don't put on weight overnight you put on weight over a period of time and therefore to lose it it will take a period of time so if your skeletal system has changed and it's now causing you problems that happened over a certain period of time which means you as an osteopath, now you have to give that patient time to get better. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's so unique to the way your approach to teaching um, was that you talked about this rhythm and it's something that I actually talked to um, Alex Hayden about. Okay. Um, and she talked about it as well. So it's not just me. We all come away from your lectures <laughs> thinking about this. Is, is the, is she talked about, you know, how you talked about treatment being rhythmical and mm -hmm. how there was, and she comes from a dance background herself. And so she instinctively understood and got that. Mm -hmm. I wonder for those who don't have, you know, that connection into that body awareness, which I'm hoping they would develop as, as they continue to practice or learn, or don't come from a dance background, how do you explain that to somebody or a new graduate or even someone who's been practicing for a long time? So as when we come to music, you see as a technicians who play all the right notes, 
but they don't have expression. And I remember when I was doing my course, they were as referring to the um, Chinese, where they are very good technicians. And sometimes when they come to England, they have to be taken to museums and all sorts of different places to find expression because they spend a lot of time being a technician, but they lack the expression. And that's trying to feel a music deep inside of you to be able to communicate that language. So I teach you as a technician, I teach you tools. I give you all these tools to work with, with your hands, but then you have to find the rhythm between you and the patient. So let's say I give you a technique that involves pushing the patient when they're facing down. Well, there's so many different ways to push that patient. But the main thing is when you push the patient, you find the body's rhythm. Because if you want the body to relax, you need to be tuning into that rhythm. And if you're imposing yourself on that patient, they won't relax. So all you'll end up with is a patient that's moving in a very rigid way. And what you're trying to do is get the patient to move in a smooth, rhythmical fashion as you gently oscillate the body. But that is finding and the rhythm in you and the rhythm in them, and then finding the middle. Coming back to the tango, there's the man, there's the woman. They come together and then they find the rhythm. And every movement is a unit. It isn't he pushes her, she pushes him. It's together. And so from an osteopathic point of view, when we come together with the patient, it is me, the patient and then we come together and I need to communicate with the patient. Now, if I'm fearful of the patient because I'm thinking, oh, the patient may sue me or I need to be doing this. I need to make sure the patient filled in a thousand documents to say it's okay for me to touch them. And I've made it very, very clear that I'm not gonna cause them any harm. And what I'm doing there is I'm creating a barrier between me and the patient. So the patient's already nervous thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? This person's going to harm me because they've had to sign all these documents that's made them scared. I mean, when you see a medical practitioner, when they give you these documents, you're nervous. You're nervous, you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, what's gonna happen? And you know they're protecting themselves because they have to. Now, what we're doing is different. We're saying to the patient, this is what I'd like to do as of today to help you as much as possible. Then once we've got their consent, then we need to come together. We need to say patient, me, and all the fear must go. And I need to come together and now listen to the patient. And not in the background, I'm thinking, I hope this patient doesn't see me. I hope this patient isn't thinking this. I need to convince the patient through my hands that I'm a sincere person, that I am here to help you. That's why I do it. I'm not doing it for money. If I was doing osteopathy for money, then I should go and do another job. There are so many other jobs which are easier to earn money that doesn't involve so much of my time. I could do those jobs, earn a lot more money, have half the risk, and go home at nine time and not have to read anything. I do osteopathy because the reward is tremendous and it's not the financial reward. What the reward is, 
And I'm saying this not because I'm trying to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I do this because of that wonderful sensation when the patient says to you, when they're better, thank you for helping me. That is worth so much because you've had a moment, a window to communicate with somebody else. And whatever you did, they felt they got better. And you can now say that your day was positive. This person has now walked away feeling better. What a contribution to humanity. If you give me a hundred pounds, you say, this is for you. Okay, fine, thank you very much. But when you say to me with a smile on your face, thank you for helping me, that is a heart, um, so, I mean, that just tugs on your heartstrings, doesn't it? It makes you feel, oh my God, you know, that is why I'm, that's why I'm doing it. You know, that human contact. And this person now leaves my practice and they walk smoothly, they look happy, they said they're happy. That's the key, not 60, 70, 80 pounds, whatever. And I wonder, whilst you're at the British School of Osteopathy, who, who were the lecturers or tutors that influenced you there? Oh, so many. I mean, so many. I'd have to say thank you to all of the lecturers that participated in my education. They all helped me. They all pushed me in the direction. And there's always people who stand out. Jonathan Nunn, who was, you know, a real inspiration. Stephen um, Sandler was very, is very passionate about osteopathy. And when you listen to Stephen Sandler on YouTube, you can see the passion dripping out of him. And, you know, he's the sort of person that he really holds his head up high when it comes to osteopathy. He doesn't apologize, he says, I'm an osteopath, and he can talk about osteopathy. So if you haven't listened to Stephen Sandler, you certainly should do, because he's very passionate about um, osteopathy. And um, at the BCom, um, at the British College of Osteopathic Medicine, all the staff that I've worked with, you know, from admin to osteopaths, they've all contributed. You know, they all bring something to the equation that makes you think, be that communication, be that how things work, you know, everybody contributes. So I'd have to say thank you to everybody. But I mean, um, Stephen Tynan, who taught osteopathic concepts at the um, British School of Osteopathy. I mean, I still read his notes. I mean, there were um, 16 lectures, long philosophical ideas, but they really do make you think about osteopathy. He's um, published lots of papers that you can find on um, Google Scholar. And again, he asked lots of questions about osteopathy. What is it we do? Why we do it? How we do it? And the uh, validity of osteopathy and makes you a little bit uncomfortable, which is, you know, the key. You know, the one thing that I loved about talking a lot with um, Andy as in Mansfield, because when we were in clinic together, we would have a sort of long conversation in the staff room. And he's so passionate about osteopathy, you know. Again, that's a person that you, know, you have a conversation and it leaves you with tingles down your spine. You just think, yes, there's other people out there that think like me. I'm not a dinosaur. I'm not this crazy person who's got stuck, who's procrastinating on this idea of osteopathy. You, know, you speak to other people who really are passionate 
professional who really stand up and say, hey, I'm not embarrassed about being an osteopath, I'm an osteopath. And then they start talking about osteopathy and they talk about how they treat and that's just so stimulating. And no point in my conversation with Andy would, would he drift into, yes, one needs to do some rehab and do some massage. No, it was all about osteopathy. And that's the exciting thing. So people like that are really stimulating and really make you think. Jonathan Nunn was like, Jonathan Nunn would talk to you about osteopathy and he would help you to become an osteopath. And I think that's what we've got to remember, graduates. When you graduate, you're just at the beginning of your journey and you need to spend time, give yourself time. You have the skills, you've been trained well. You need to give yourself the time to become an osteopath. Don't think about anything else other than becoming an osteopath because that's where your reward will be. And that's where you'll look back in 20 years and think, yeah, I'm proud to be an osteopath. I'm really happy. And I'm glad those people who pushed me at college really hard in the direction of osteopathy did that because now I'm beginning to find some balance because I'm still looking for balance. You know, I'm searching for balance in the osteopathic world all the time. And that's certainly something that I got from you is, is the why I remember the specific patient and couldn't come up with a diagnosis. And you know, you asked me why, why is this, mm. why are they presenting this way? Exactly. I was like, I don't know. And you sent me away. You're like, go away, come back next week. That's right. And I spent a good couple of days in the library looking into things. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And I came back to you and was like, Mr. No, no, I don't know. And you're like, go away again and come back again. And, and it was that pushing that you were able to do, which probably didn't appreciate at the time. Cause I thought, Oh, I just need him to sign a form so I can get on with something else. That's right. But it was that pushing that made me more inquisitive to be able to look into other factors. And like you said before, look at the bigger picture. Yes. And I and came. Also, and also, as you're saying, sorry, I interrupted you, is I said, when you join the medical profession, which is what we are a part of, you have to be prepared to constantly improve your skills because you have a tremendous responsibility. It takes a few moments to create chaos in somebody's life forever. And so therefore, when I sent you away to read, it wasn't necessary to come back with the right answer. It was just the act of, I need to go away and think about why. And if I don't have the answer, then I must go away and think. And not, I don't have the answer, so that's what it is. I didn't know, I didn't know. And so therefore, I just go home and do something else. No, if you don't know, then it's your duty to the patient to go home and work, to think, to read, and come back with an idea. You may not have the answer, but to me, as long as you constantly go home and think about why you're on the right journey. But if you just say to yourself, hands up, well, you know, you've got this chronic lower back pain. It's been with you for a long time. I don't know why you've got it, but I want to do some soft tissue and some mobilization. And who knows? Maybe you'll get better, maybe not. I think you're a little lazy anyway. You don't do your exercises. That's why you're not getting better. You see, we're lost. Now, the moment I say to myself, this patient's got chronic lower back pain. What can I do about this? What sort of impact can I have on this lower back pain? 
What are the predisposing factors, the maintaining factors? What's the psychological aspect? Why does this patient come to me, pay me, and not get better? For the mere fact they exchange, they give me a percentage of their salary. That's what they do. And if they're willing to give me a percentage of their salary, why are they not willing to do what I think might help them? Maybe it's me. So when I'm with the students, when they're confused, I always remember I am the one that's confusing them. It's not because they're stupid. The way I see my students is they all have wonderful potential, great potential. They're clever, they're smart. It's my job to bring out that potential. And sometimes they're not aware of what they're doing to allow that potential to come to its full flourishing. And it's my job as the tuition to push that out, to, to lift it, to show them. And that's painful sometimes because you may want to go out with your friend. And I say to you, well, you know, you need to write this letter because the patient comes first. And you say, yes, but I've been working all week and I want to go out. And I say, yes, I understand that. But the patient comes first because they're your, you know, it's your responsibility. So write the letter, please. And you get really upset with me. Or you say to me, you know, I don't want to go home and read that research paper. I say, you have to. You say, well, I don't want to. I say, well, you have to, because you're challenging me and I like that. And so you need to now go home, read about it, think about it and come back and have another conversation. I'm not trying to be right. Sometimes my students think I'm trying to be right. I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to create a discussion. Tom Hewitson is great when it comes to this. Students find Tom prickly. And the reason why they find him prickly is because he challenges them. He says, why? Why is that? Where's your evidence? Show me. And of course, he's cornering them and he's making them think. But the thing they're missing is he is giving them precious time, his time, and he's challenging their intellect. And all they need to do is be positive and say, this is good. This makes me think. I need to go think, come back and say, Tom, we had this discussion and now I'm thinking like this. And then he gives you more. You go away and you add to it. That's your growth. And not that barrier of why are you doing this to me? Why are you challenging me all the time? Challenge is good. Absolutely. And I always think of, of, of a couple of things when someone challenges you that way. You can retreat and just disengage or you can mm -hmm. fight back, which probably isn't the best yeah. discourse to take. Or you can come to that middle point you were talking about, that ebb and yeah. flow. And you mm. can think, okay, they're doing their job. Yes. They're, they're doing their job. Now I get to do my job. And not I have to do my job. I get to do my job, which mm. is go away as a student. Make the mistakes, because that's what you're there for. Yeah, exactly. Read, talk to other people. And I wonder how you're able to get that growth and that sort of challenge, not for just for yourself, but when you're in practice, because you're not surrounded by upteen amounts of tutors. And sometimes you are working on your own for a very long time. So mm. I wonder where you get that challenge or uh, experience that growth, you know, 20 years down the line. Yeah, and that's a massive challenge, isn't it? Because when you're in practice, it's easy to get stuck. 
it's easy to come up with terminology like, I know what I'm doing. I do this, it works. I do this on all my patients, this is the way. I've heard graduates say to me that they've gone to practice to work and principals have the audacity to tell them how to do their job. And you think, hang on a second, that's so wrong. Because as the principal, your job is to further help that person to learn. It's not to tell them that what they've been taught is rubbish. It's to say to them, okay, you've been given building blocks, lots of building blocks. So now my job is to give you the opportunity to examine those building blocks, put those building blocks together in as many different ways as possible to help you to think and to grow. My job is not to come up to you and say to you, you're wrong. Every patient needs high velocity, low amateur technique. Every patient you should start off with some soft tissue mobilization. And if somebody's got a lower back um, sort of problem, that's what they've got. Treat the lower back and get on with it. That's not my job. My job as the principal of a practice is to say to the student who's just graduated, okay, now there's this new direction for you, for you to grow, for you to do, to uh, develop your skills. And I'm here as your springboard. I'm not here as your guide. I'm just here as a springboard. And whenever I feel you're getting lost, my job is to say, you know, don't lose faith in osteopathy. Maybe you should read a bit more about osteopathy. Maybe you should do a course where they're talking about osteopathy. Maybe you should think a little bit more about the patient and not say to you, well, the reason why you're getting lost is because you spend too long looking at the patient. You spend too long palpating. You know, just do something quickly. Get them in and out. Get them in and out. out. That's not, that's not going to help the profession. That doesn't allow the next generation to become stable osteopaths. Just creates insecurity. It doesn't help them. And our job is to help them. So if you have a practice and you take somebody under your wing, it's your job if you take a percentage to help them to develop the skills they've got. They, can, they have to, first of all, develop the skills they've got before they can move on. You can't bin their skills and create instability, because that's what you would do. If you say to a graduate, everything that you've been taught is rubbish, and now I'll teach you how to become an osteopath, all you've done is created complete chaos, because that individual now thinks, what do I do? If you say to them, you've got great skills, so now let's polish those skills, let's bring those skills to a new level. And then when you've got those skills to a new level, then we can talk about something else. And maybe you'll come to me and start feeding me ideas. And then we can both grow together. But I don't have the answers. You know, people who say they've got the answers, come on, osteopathy is a broad church. And that's what makes it so exciting that if you could clone a patient with the same problem and give those patients to 50 different osteopaths, they would be all different. The treatment would be different. And if you film them all, you'd think, wow, how could it be so different? That's because as an osteopath, we're unique. And as we said at the beginning, when you do osteopathy, you bring all your psychological education to the equation. When I do osteopathy, I bring all my performing arts into the equation because it's a part of me. So for me to say to somebody, you need to treat the patient the way I do, it's ridiculous. When I'm the tutor, I have to guide and push 
And sometimes the students think that I'm trying to get them to be a clone like me. I'm not. I'm just pushing them in a direction and hoping that if I push them hard enough, they will then find their own direction. And speaking of direction, I know you already talked about sort of some of the changes that might happen within GEOSC itself, but where do you hope the profession goes in the next five or 10 years? Well, hope is an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, what I would like to see before I retire is I'd like to see each generation um, graduate with more strength from an osteopathic point of view, really being proud to be osteopath, standing up, and pushing osteopathy forwards and getting rid of, you know, social media is a part of the problem, of course, you know, people advertising that they're really good at doing what they're doing, or, you know, selling an idea that they can't actually support. And I sometimes get the impression that people are chasing money instead of chasing the health of the person. I mean, that's why we're here. We're here. And if you don't believe it, people out there, I say, if you don't believe this, then don't do this business. Our job is to help people. That's why we do it. We signed up to help people. That's what we get paid for. We get paid to help. And that's where the greatest reward is. So we need to produce osteopaths who have a heart for osteopathy, who go out there and push osteopathy forwards and are proud to say I'm an osteopath and do research to improve osteopathy. You know, not doing research as to whether rehab helps patients. No, let the physiotherapists do that. That's what they spend a lot of time doing. But we need to say that if we are spending time moving joints about, what is it we're doing? And that, that's where the research should be. What impact does it have? Are we working on a micro level or is it on a macro level? Where are, are we working? How does the, you know, does our philosophical stance mean anything? Or is it just words? That's what we need. We need new osteopaths out there doing that work, but standing up and never flexing slightly and saying, I'm sorry, I'm an osteopath and allowing somebody to have the audacity to say, I'm gonna call you a musculoskeletal therapist. I'm sorry? If somebody said to me, you know, I'm gonna call you a musculoskeletal therapist, I'd say, no disrespect, but I'm an osteopath. And if you'd like me to work as it with you, that is my title, I'm an osteopath. I'm nothing else, I'm not a doctor, I'm an osteopath, so please refer to me as an osteopath. If they say, well, you know, um, well, you know, I'm not sure what that is. I say, well, give me some time and I'll explain it to you if you'd like me to. But I'm not going to let you call me something else. You know, I'm not like a chiropractor. A chiropractor is not like me. I'm not a chiropractor. I'm not like physiotherapy. I'm not a physiotherapist. And physiotherapists are not osteopaths. And I have a tremendous, and I repeat this because I don't want anybody to think that I'm, you know, pointing the finger, I've got tremendous respect for each discipline and I, and I would never critique those disciplines. And I have a great respect for the National Health Service, really do. I think it's the best thing that we've got in this country and without it, a lot of people would be very unwell. But as osteopaths, we are still, you know, we need respect. We need people to realize that 
We work very hard. The training is incredible, as you've experienced. And anybody who thinks that what we do is elementary, they need to perhaps come along and do the training. And then they'd realize how my students work so hard to achieve their goal and how they spend endless hours reading, thinking, and, and but not just reading for the night, learning, but being forced to put the information together and use it. I mean, it's easy to learn information, regurgitate it, and then forget it. But when you're being asked to learn information and apply it, and when people are constantly saying to you, well, what do you mean by that? Justify, tell me more. You know, why are you doing that for the patient? How do you justify that? That is hard training. So I take my hat off all the time, although my students don't realize this, because obviously my job is to help them to move forward. But every day I take my hat off to my students and I say, well done, you're working hard. And I push them, you know, as you know, I'm hard and I push them hard because I want the best. You know, I don't want them to graduate as okay. I want them to be the best they can possibly be. And I think you would agree. That's what our job is, isn't it? Is to make sure that each generation can be the best they can be. And when they go into practice, they can then work at being the best they can be as osteopaths. And so you talk a lot about being a tutor and, and mm. pushing your students. And having been a previous student, obviously I have a little bit of a bias, but um, why do you think you know, people should come to the British College of Osteopathic Medicine? Okay, so I really love being there. And people may say, well, he's just saying that. Well, that's not true because I've been there for almost 20 years. And my time is very important. So I wouldn't spend almost 20 years there if I didn't love it. So I didn't go to the uh, college and think to myself, why am I here? I go to the college and I am stimulated by being with young people, their intellectual power, you know, and that intellectual power comes because the staff are very sincerely keen to help. They push the students hard and they want I think the staff sincerely, I mean, it's difficult to say this because obviously I don't know what everybody wants, but I know, maybe I should just talk from my point of view. From where I stand, I sincerely do want my students to do the best they can possibly do. And I think that the school offers many great opportunities from an intellectual point of view. I mean, yes, the school is changing and lots of new things are going to be happening. And our joining the um, European School of Osteopathy is going to change things completely as well. But I think that the um, British College of Osteopathic Medicine really offers a great platform for students to become osteopaths, naturopaths. And I do think that we give them the opportunity to learn and to ask questions. I don't think that the environment is intimidating where students cannot ask questions. Now, there's always a possibility that perhaps it's more intimidating than I think it is. But I, I'm always accosted by students who pin me down. Students crack jokes as are with me all the time. You know, they say things about me all the time and I take it on the chin. They ask me questions and if they don't think I'm right, they say to me, I'm not sure about that, Mr. Nenna. And I can, and I take that on the chin and I always go home. And you know, if a student says to me, I'm, I'm not sure if that's right, Mr. Nenna, 
then I'll go home and I'll revise it and I'll come back. And then I'll say to a student, we had a conversation last week about this. What are your thoughts now? And then they'll talk to me about it. And then I'll see if my knowledge matches them. So I think that many members of staff are like that. I think that the British College of Osteopathic Medicine is a great place to be. And I don't see myself leaving there. I see myself retiring from there, but I don't see myself you know, just deciding one day I'm going to leave. No, I think I will come to my retirement and then I will leave unless they politely ask me to leave. And for the sake of uh, future students coming in, I hope that doesn't happen for a, for a very long time. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you very much. But I just want to thank you for your time today. It's been it's been a pleasure just to be able to reconnect with you in, in this way, you know, having been a student, to being a graduate, to being a colleague. And, you know, we don't work on the same days at, at the college. So it's been such a pleasure to be able to sit and have this kind of conversation, which I hope everyone, and I know everyone will, will resonate with. Well, I'd like to conclude by saying thank you for giving me the opportunity to express some ideas. And they are just ideas, my ideas. But I think that what you're doing, Sylvain, is really great. And I think you should try to um, find as many young and mature osteopaths, because what you're doing, which either you are fully aware of, or you haven't quite thought about it like this, is you're creating a really good platform for people when they're lost to listen to osteopaths and think, okay, I was really lost, but that's some great ideas there. I don't like that. I think you're talking nonsense, but that one nugget you give me, thank you very much. I'll take that away and I'll use it. And so the more osteopaths you interview, and because it's a modern thing you're doing, I think you're creating a great platform for people to come back and listen to and grow and realize that there is a lot to the profession. And there's lots of people who are like them, who feel insecure, who don't have the answers, who have days where they're lost and think, what am I really doing here? And it's not just them, you know? So when they go into practice and they think, wow, I'm really lost today. There's other people who have also been honest and said, hey, I feel that quite often that I always go back and I start back from the platform and I start reading, I start thinking, I think about my philosophy and I come back and I strengthen myself. And it's great to know that I'm not on my own. So I should do that and not, I'm just lost. So well done for doing this, um, Sylvan. Thanks. And I often listen back to some of these episodes. Mm -hmm. Like I recently, I listened back to Andy's episode that was published a while ago. And, you know, and there are things that you take from each um, episode that you forget about and then you mm -hmm. reintroduce to it or you, you know, you relearn things or reminds you of things and it sort of gives you that little bit of a, a little bit of a boost. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Great. So thank you so much. And I'll no doubt see you very soon. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye.